Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hello, my friends in the United States and around the world. I hope everybody's doing well. We've been fighting some hurricanes going on in Florida in the past week, and I hope everybody down there fared well. I hope by now all the power's back on and people are doing well. But today, I have Dr. Peter Pressman in the studio with me, and I'm pretty excited about that. Peter, welcome. Thank you so much for hosting. I've had you on the show before, but this is the first time you've been in the studio with me. I know. It's really fun watching you uh, through the window here. (laughs) Uh, I get to see, not just hear the smile. Live and in person. So you are a neurologist and an MD at University of Colorado Hospital Anschutz location. And you are also not only working in the clinic, but you're working on the research side. That's correct. And I'm involved with many different aspects of research, what we call observational studies. So just trying to better understand how neurological disorders impact the brain and also with clinical trials, of course, uh, trying to find cures ultimately for disorders like Alzheimer's. Okay. So in your clinic work, you work with people with Alzheimer's and frontal temporal. Any other specialties? Yeah, we see a lot of different people in the clinic. Um, My particular focus is on frontotemporal dementias and primary progressive aphasias, um, but a lot of different Alzheimer's as well, Um, both what we would call typical, meaning uh, that over the age of 65 impacting mostly memory, what most of us think of when we think of Alzheimer's, and atypical forms, which can happen under the age of 65 and can cause all sorts of uh, unusual symptoms uh, such as loss of language, uh, mimicking blindness, behavioral changes, and others. Mm -hmm. And so you and I have talked at length because I have a brother with FTD, um, frontal temporal, and uh, he has the primary progressive aphasia and the behavioral variant. Uh, which is just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> um, and so it, it keeps us going. Um, but obviously for the people who are experiencing those disorders and their loved ones, you know very well and uh, have committed your life uh, to helping those uh, folks because, well, not, not as much fun for them. Right. And when it comes to living with these diseases and living well, sometimes that's really challenging. Absolutely. So one of the things, most of what we're going to talk about today is not really the care of the day-to-day processes for these folks with these various diagnoses, but what are we doing on the research side? Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a lot of developments in the last few years in research, as, especially as it uh, relates to clinical trials. Right. Um, and some of that news has been, shall we say, controversial. Really controversial. And in fact, I uh, I had a show, um, oh, I want to say it's close to probably a year ago maybe, when um, the the advisory group, um, the advisor, advisory group with um, the FDA wasn't particularly happy about <laughs> a, a drug being pushed through with for from Biogen, and it really was because possibly you didn't have enough conclusive data to really feel like you could put your weight behind having people join this research. And and some of the things that came up, Peter, were, um, you know, brain bleeds and swelling and things like that, and then an exorbitant cost to have people join that study. And I can imagine as a researcher, you put your, you know, fingers on your chin and said, hmm. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll back up uh, just a bit on that. Um, yes, I have definitely said hmm more than once in the uh, – 
Adjikanumab or Adjihelm's saga. Um, but the study and the research, uh, that was uh, no cost. That was free. But after FDA approval, um, then people had an opportunity to take this drug and that is problematic on a number of different levels. The price uh, was extravagant and the FDA uh, had approved this under circumstances that were a little off the beaten path. Um, they, right. It was following a uh, special track and also – Highly unusual was its decision to move the drug forward in direct opposition to the guidance of all the specialists on its panel. Practically all. I think one person abstained and everybody else said, no, it's not ready. One large study suggested that uh, it might help after they took a look at it uh, again. Um, so at first it said, no, it doesn't work. And then they really looked hard at the data and thought maybe for some people it, it, it helped. And another large study showed no such benefit. But I think so many people were eager to move the needle forward, to have something uh, to face Alzheimer's, this uh, just crushing <laughs> problem. Uh, that they were willing to make these exceptions. Unfortunately, I think uh, that there were many consequences to that decision and uh, we're dealing with some of the fallout across research and elsewhere. And having said that, that's a good segue into we're going to talk about a research clinical trial that is going on in Denver and you're looking for participants. But before we get into it, how has that affected you with other research projects that are going on that maybe seemed controversial or even people that are saying, well, how can we believe science at this point if the FDA is saying this and researchers are saying that? Have you come across uh, groups of people as you're out talking about research that maybe are asking you some pointed questions or difficult questions? And so are pointed and difficult questions being asked? Yes. And honestly, I love that. That's the point of science is to ask difficult questions. Uh, when it's done well, that's something that we should all be encouraging. I think the frustration uh, that I heard from uh, many folks is uh, were enough questions asked before we moved forward. Um, and are we asking enough questions about Alzheimer's broadly? So um, within Alzheimer's research, there is a long history of people who are very heavily invested in what's called the amyloid hypothesis, right. the hypothesis that Alzheimer's disease is primarily driven uh, by the misfolding of the protein amyloid and that the accumulation of this protein is directly related to subsequent neurodegeneration, so uh, death of brain cells and cognitive decline. Um, this has always been somewhat controversial but I think because amyloid at least offered an alluring target, a lot of effort has piled in in that direction. Um, so uh, there's many studies um, that have uh, been focused on that, on removing that amyloid uh, without a ton of success. Now. There are a couple just on the horizon um, that may be a little bit more promising. Um, and you know what? While I have not had a patient uh, on aducanumab yet, uh, it was a milestone. Uh, you know, it was a statement that maybe we were finally getting somewhere. Uh, other agents, uh, such as, for example, lecanumab. Um, may ultimately be more promising. Um, they recently uh, released a statement uh, suggesting that a phase three trial had uh, promising data, lower risk of side effects, uh, as well as a measurable effect. Uh, it was a more diverse population. Uh, most of my colleagues are more enthusiastic about this, but it still is not approved. Um, and there's... Uh, Still more eyes that need to be on this. 
many of us, and I admit myself included, however, uh, are, are getting tired of the amyloid hypothesis. Like how long can you chase this with right. such little payoff before you need to explore other options? Well, thank you for that because one of the things that I have talked to Dr. Huntington Potter about at length, uh, my family is in a study out of WashU St. Louis. So when my mom was going through her journey, they were studying her while she was alive because it doesn't do any good to try and study somebody's brain in my my mind if they don't know how they lived through it. You know, you need to know the symptoms. You need to know how the family interacted. There's so much information and data you can draw from all of that. But when she ended up having her autopsy, she had the tau protein. But I mentioned, probably to nauseam for you, <laughs> that um, she had the tau. And she had yeah. the C9ORF gene mutation, C9ORF72 gene mutation that my brother inherited. But my mom had Alzheimer's-type symptoms all the way. Not an ounce of beta amyloid in her brain. None. So I think what you're raising really highlights the need for ongoing studies to understand Alzheimer's at a fundamental level and diseases like Alzheimer's. Right. Um, have we been effectively shooting with our clinical trials without even really knowing what we should aim for? One of the things that I was most heartened by uh, in recent years at conferences uh, like the Alzheimer's Association International Conference was a diversification of thought as people keep seeing a relatively poor performance uh, of agents focused on amyloid, though I, as I mentioned before, we may be seeing some exceptions on the horizon. Um, it was shifting people's perspective. They were talking about other things. You know, should we be focusing on mitochondria? Should we be focusing on uh, more lifestyle modifications and uh, what we're doing in our clinical trial, uh, focusing on uh, aspects of neuroinflammation and how that may influence uh, the brain. Right. And, you know, that brings up a lot of good questions that people are, are really bringing forth because how much does lifestyle impact? I mean, back in the day, a hundred years ago, People weren't particularly eating well. They weren't even eating a lot. People were starving between meals. I mean, we had a lot of problems way back in the early 1900s of people going across the country um, and really just not having what I would term good nutrition. And how much does that play into it? But having said that, we can have people that go hiking every weekend. I've met uh, you know, geologists and and um, all kinds of people that are just incredibly uh, educated people that are still dealing with this disease. Nobody seems to be exempt. So where does that leave us? You know, uh, Jill, you, you hit some good highlights in there that uh, I wish the audience can see. I'm just kind of nodding <laughs> here like, yeah. Um, first and foremost – I don't think enough people in this field hear about reasons for realistic hope and I do think that there are reasons for realistic oh, hope. Oh, I do too. One of those reasons for me is the effect of lifestyle. It's the effect of uh, choices made across the lifespan and how that can reduce your risk of dementia. So um, – Fairly recently, within the last couple of years, a paper was published suggesting that a person's chances could be cut substantially overall, uh, I think around 40 percent by adhering to certain lifestyle practices across the lifespan. That's remarkable and right. I think needs to be strongly considered. It's not the same as a cure. It's not the same as a guarantee that if you do everything right, there's no way you can get this disease as you said. Uh, we definitely don't have that. Uh, but there are certainly ways of improving your odds. And mm -hmm. so I encourage that uh, with all of my patients who want to keep their brains healthy as they age. And um, other reasons for hope are in clinical trials, for example. And I don't mean um, you know, a cure tomorrow or anything like that. But I do think that the needle is moving. Um, 
I am seeing more signs of uh, success. Uh, at first, uh, questionable in perhaps more ways than one. Uh, but I think it's a sign of finally some traction. And I'd like to keep that moving. I right. want to uh, encourage people to participate uh, in research so that we can keep working together and hopefully finally bring an end to this uh, disease called Alzheimer's. Right. I find it fascinating, and I don't expect you to know or give an answer to this, but I just want to say it out loud, that when the pandemic hit, so much effort was put in the science world to finding a way to fight the pandemic. And I kept thinking to myself, boy, I wish somebody cared this much about, you know, <laughs> Alzheimer's frontal temporal Lewy body and Parkinson's disease. Wouldn't that be something, right? I know it I know it's apples and oranges. I know it's a different thing. But they seemed to be able to come up with some vaccines that really made a difference. So I'm wondering what your thought is on on that because so many of our friends with Alzheimer's and these various dementias during the pandemic seemed to go downhill. They, uh, they yes. couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't do anything. They weren't leaving their homes. And I've seen a significant increase in people attending my classes, my support groups, and things like that, um, really talking about how they were affected by the pandemic. So I just gave you a mouthful there to try to answer. To. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Take um, any part of it and I won't, I won't well, mind. There's so much uh, to begin with. I agree. Um, I haven't seen hard data to back this up, but the sense that I get um, both from my own patients and from talking to colleagues and uh, trying to see if uh, they've noticed a similar trend among their own patients is that, yeah, uh, the pandemic was hard on people in a lot of ways. And um, the lack of ability uh, to get out and uh, to engage uh, was undoubtedly part of it. Undoubtedly part of it was the virus itself. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, we are still adjusting um, our clinical and research models to a post-pandemic reality. Uh, so for example, in the clinic, I think we have seen a positive shift towards telemedicine, which I really hope will expand access to quality care for the long term. I think it will because the people in the far reaches of each state that are not near a metropolis, they need some help as well. And that's where telemedicine is going to come in and, and play a big role. Because anywhere someone is that they're in a country road or they're in the mountains or any you know anywhere around the world for that matter, uh, we have to be able to reach those people somehow. And thank goodness for that medium to be able to do that. And and as far as research goes, we've had to take these things into strong consideration as well. People are. On the average, I'd say less eager to get out of their houses and some are still afraid to get out of their houses. Right. So when we are designing research um, such as the Leukine trial, we are also taking that into consideration. You know, Are there ways that we can come to them? Are there ways that we can make this as easy as possible on people? Um, you know, we've, we've all been through a lot lately and um, we want to make it as simple as possible to keep getting better. Right. Recently, I worked with uh, Dr. Delia Bakeman on a situation where I had two people with Alzheimer's in the house and they had agoraphobia. They would not leave the home. And what a nightmare that turned out to be. We're going to take a short break and listen to a word from my sponsor, Carolan at Bellevue Station, and we'll be right back. Carillon at Bellevue Station is a residential community enriching the senior living experience. Our community, full of grandeur and elegance, is located near Cherry Hills, Colorado. We offer independent living and personalized assisted living services and an intimate, caring neighborhood for our residents with Alzheimer's and other dementias. 
a beautifully appointed spacious apartment, chef-prepared meals, transportation services, and a team devoted to your safety and wellness are what awaits you when you reside at Carillon at Bellevue Station. Call 720-440-8200 or visit carillon at bellevuestation.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, I'm in the studio with Dr. Peter Pressman. And Peter, as a neurologist, you've spent a good portion of your time in clinic with patients. Oh, yes. And then on the other side of your work, you're in the let's find some hope range (laughs) of research. And so um, UCH, University of Colorado Hospital, and Shoots here in Denver serves a five-state region. So we have a lot of people that come from afar. And you're going into a second phase. Is it the second phase of a study? And uh, we want to talk about that today and what that study is and why it's important. And you said in the last segment that studying inflammation is a new way to look at some of the problems with Alzheimer's that could be a root cause. Yeah, I think that inflammation in the brain has really been taking off as a topic of study with a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in part because of uh, frustration, as I discussed before, with kind of the tried and true amyloid hypothesis. But nothing about it negates a role for amyloid. The truth is, inflammation is really complicated. <laughs> And uh, we are really learning a lot by pursuing that line of inquiry, by asking questions related to that. Um, The study that I'm working on here is a study of an agent called sargramostim or leukine. And we are investigating primarily its safety in people with Alzheimer's. Now, Sargramostim has actually been around for a long time. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's FDA approved for other reasons, usually to stimulate the bone marrow, uh, to help people recover after it's been depleted, for example, by uh, radiation injury or more commonly uh, as part of a cancer therapy. Okay. Here, what we're trying to do is use it as a general boost uh, to aspects of the immune system. based on earlier data that suggests that it may be helpful. Now, our primary goal, as in any phase two study, is safety. While we know that this is uh, safe and has been FDA approved for the reasons that I mentioned, uh, it has not been studied in this way uh, for people with Alzheimer's. So, We'll be monitoring people very closely to make sure that there's no untoward side effects. And yes, of course, we'll also be looking uh, for signs of, a, of an effect of it helping people. Okay. Um, and so there will be a number of different tests and assessments done with that purpose as well. Though ultimately, that would require a much larger phase three study to really solidify. Okay. So – is this the one that Dr. Potter talked to me about several years ago where his little million-dollar mice, uh, one of his mice, ended up with cancer and this is kind of how this all came to play? Um, and he was looking for a way to, to – this, this mouse actually had Alzheimer's. They had given it some beta amyloid and when it got sick with the cancer – they were trying to find a way to make it better <laughs> because you can't lose these mice. I mean, you need them for a, a lot. Now, um, I have heard <laughs> I have heard mouse studies of uh, GMCSF, also sargramostim. Yes, I admit I'm not very familiar with that particular story. Oh, so just so you're aware. Okay, <laughs> um, but the way that. Dr. Potter came to think of Sargramostim as a possible agent for the treatment of Alzheimer's uh, was through various routes. And one was through the observation that people with rheumatoid arthritis are less likely 
uh, to develop Alzheimer's. Okay. Now, nothing's absolute. Um, right. There right. will be exceptions to every rule. But statistically, it's less likely and that's striking. What is it about this group of people that may uh, suggest some protective agent? Okay. Um, this was followed through a series of uh, lab-based experiments, including those in Alzheimer's-based mice. Okay. And uh, in those mice, uh, there were several signs of uh, possible benefit. Um, now, unfortunately, mice are not people. Right. And um, there's been a number of times where we've seen promise in mice. And I would caution your listeners against jumping in excitement every time uh, they read a newspaper <laughs> article that says that once again, we have cured Alzheimer's in mice. Um, it is an important step. It is a crucial step, but it is only one step and it is an early step. Right. So as a next step, there was a small study um, which Dr. Jonathan Woodcock and Dr. Potter were working on, mm -hmm. which further evaluated possible signs of uh, harm or benefit. Um, what they found uh, suggested that certainly it looked like this was safe enough for further exploration and that there may be some signs of benefit. As I said before, we really need larger numbers to know mm -hmm. and that's the purpose of this study is to really solidify and firm up those findings, see that this is safe and continue to look for signs of benefit um, along a line that I think is uh, relatively novel uh, compared to many of the other trials that are out there. So as an example, there were 40 or 42 in the first study. Is that correct? Fewer, I'm afraid. So in oh, this study, okay. um, we are actually – aiming for 45 or so. Oh, OK. So and the initial study, it was smaller, okay. uh, closer to 20. Okay. But that's still enough to offer us confidence and reassurance that we can take a next step. We do try to be very careful in how we proceed. We don't want to cause harm. That's literally one of the first rules of medicine, uh, right? Prima non nocere. So we're trying very hard to adhere to that. Okay. Um, so in this larger study, we are checking in very frequently to make sure that there's no signs of harm. But we are also doing cognitive assessments. Uh, we are doing detailed questioning about how people are doing in their everyday life because ultimately that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And we'll be also looking for signs on um, – biomarkers. So uh, for some listeners, when I say biomarker, what I really mean is a measure in blood or uh, cerebrospinal fluid or changes on neuroimaging, something that directly relates to the underlying biology that we can measure and see it changing in the direction that we hope and expect. Okay. So – We'll be assessing all of these uh, for our participants as uh, they stick with us uh, for roughly six months uh, each. Okay. So we're going to break some of those down. But I have really well-educated listeners after doing I've this no for doubt. five years. <laughs> so basically what Dr. Pressman just said to you, my caregiver nation out there, is that they are looking for a group of people that – that are willing to come in, uh, maybe do some neurobehavioral exams where you ask a lot of questions over a few hours to figure out where they are from a cog cognitive and memory standpoint. How am I doing so far? Oh, so far, it's great. Good. And then you might do some spinal fluid um, uh, taking it out. I don't know what the <laughs> That's OK. How, let, do you, how do you say it? Actually, let me take a moment to talk about yes, it because I think that do. it really needs uh, – some explanation. Some explanation. <laughs> uh, the term that we use is lumbar puncture. Oh, um, there you go. There you the go. Uh, common term for it is a spinal tap. Okay. And uh, if I may, I think spinal tap sounds much uh, more imposing. It's scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh, I like thinking of it uh, along the lines of the mockumentary actually though. Um, there uh, is a scene where 
uh, the band Spinal Tap is really building up uh, the song Stonehenge and they're <laughs> waiting for this huge monument to drop. And when it drops, it's just kind of this miniature model. It wasn't everything it was built up to be. Right. In many ways, I feel that way about the actual Spinal Tap. Okay. Now, it's not to say that anybody would line up to get this done for fun. It's an invasive procedure uh, in which a needle is slipped between the bones of the back into a sack of fluid uh, well below where the spinal cord actually ends. So there's very little risk to the cord itself uh, unless the procedure is being done tremendously wrong. Okay. Um, the fluid is then extracted and analyzed. There's a lot of different things that we can learn only from that fluid. Okay. Um, because that is in direct contact with the brain. Um, right. It circulates around and certain proteins uh, are contained in that fluid that give us a sense of what's happening in the brain. Okay. This is one of the only ways that we can better determine a diagnosis of Alzheimer's pathology in the living without having to go on to biopsy. Okay. We look for levels of amyloid. We look for levels of tau. And if they cross certain thresholds, we say that's probably consistent with underlying Alzheimer's pathology. Okay. The reason why this is important in a study is that it turns out that we're not as good at diagnosing Alzheimer's disease as we often think we are. You have a personal story that I think illustrates that well. Mm -hmm. um, compared to certain studies of autopsy, uh, doctors are wrong um, 10 to 20 percent of the time. And uh, in certain cases, uh, atypical Alzheimer's, that goes up higher. Uh, citations go up as high as 35 percent of the time. And in at least one clinical trial uh, of bapinuzumab, uh, one of the groups was found to be 35 percent not Alzheimer's. So if you think of it that way, how can we expect clinical trials to succeed if you're not even studying the disease that you think you are? Right. So most clinical trials now are very careful about making sure that there is an objective sign of the Alzheimer's disease in the brain, not just symptoms. Now, having said that, mm -hmm. with people trying to qualify, here's where I think it gets really tricky. So we can meet people who are still living on their own. They're walking and talking and and they're moving along with their daily routine quite well. Uh, but when you actually sit and talk to them, they ask you the same question over again. Um, and it's hard to discern who has mild cognitive impairment and who has early stage, and where does early stage actually cross over into mid-stage? And, and I think that would be the nightmarish part of trying to find people that are in the uh, mild cognitive impairment stage um, to be a part of the study. Because I've had – I put this uh, email out that Michelle Stalker through UCH uh, Marketing asked me to put out to my listeners and people who attend my classes. <clears throat> and so uh, when I did that, uh, a lot of people answered and said, oh, I would love to be a part of that. And I know they've been in my group for like four years <laughs> or their family members have. And I'm not sure their people are actually going to qualify for this, but I'm going to let you all figure that out. I actually uh, am really glad that you brought this up. Um, <laughs> like so many of your other questions, it, it raises a lot of uh, <laughs> possible answers. But um, one of the reasons why I'm happy to be working on this trial is that unlike many other trials, we're not necessarily just recruiting at the mild cognitive impairment or early dementia stages. Okay. Um, most trials do this because they're really trying to maximize the possibility of detecting a benefit. So if you are really trying to stop this disease, your best shot is probably – by catching it as soon as possible. This is why so many people in the field are really emphasizing the importance of early detection. Mm -hmm. um, that is when intervention is most likely to help. And uh, clinical trials, for the same reason, 
wanting to maximize the chances of demonstrating that help are usually looking to recruit people as early as they reliably can. The night. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the nice thing about a phase two study is that we are primarily focused on safety. Mm-hmm. And so while, yes, we do uh, hope and are looking for signs of benefit, with a goal of safety in mind, we can expand uh, the criteria of the people that are eligible. So people with later dementia then may often be considered eligible for a clinical trial, would be eligible for a trial like this. Okay. So I have a question for you. Yesterday in my support group, there's a couple there and she just misses by one month your criteria of 60 to 80. And she's perfect. She's absolutely perfect for this study. In terms of she can carry on great conversation with you and and everything else. And she was devastated. And I said uh, her and her husband both wanted to call in. So I just encouraged them both to call in today and let you guys decide. Because I didn't know how stringent that was. When you have somebody who um, he's younger, but he's a little further along than she is. Sure. So he fits it by two years. She misses it by one month. Oh, that – it breaks my heart. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> it breaks my heart for all kinds of reasons. Um, people find a lot of purpose in participating in clinical trials. Absolutely. And whether or not the agent ends up being a cure that we all hope for, at least someone is learning something. At right. least out of all these problems that someone is going through – there's some glimmer of light and someone may benefit uh, in the end. Uh, so I, it's really important to me to be able to offer that to people. Mm-hmm. The rules of research are also necessarily strict right. um, for the sake of trying to be very clear on uh, what we understand and there are multiple processes through which that goes to adhere. Mm-hmm. Um, in this sort of situation, I would encourage people reach out, check, uh, see if uh, things have been designed in a way that it might be possible. Um, people will try, at least I hope, to find a way to help you. Even if that trial weren't possible, there should be a way uh, to help you contribute because mm-hmm. honestly, there's a lot of work that needs doing. And there, uh, another couple asked me about uh, the fact that their daughter knew that I had spoken to them about it and thought they would be perfect for this because they're in early stage. And uh, she had a lot of reservations. Mm -hmm. They were super excited about it because they have the disease and and she doesn't, (laughs) right? Right. So they're like, we want to be a part of this. And she had a lot of reservations. What would you say to somebody who um, their parents maybe or someone wanted to be in this and a family member has some reservations? Um. It's always a personal choice. And so the way that I present clinical research to patients is that the best reason to participate is in hopes of helping people down the line. Um, If we were 100 percent sure that this was something that was going to help you directly, well, it wouldn't be research. We would just be offering it to you. Right, right. I would consider, yes, um, potential risks and I think that's an important conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. We have that conversation several times and at different degrees of specificity throughout. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's an initial kind of introduction where things are broadly discussed and then as people continue conversations, this gets more and more detailed. Before you participate in research, you uh, will engage in a uh, consenting dialogue. Um, where this has gone over in, well, legalistic levels of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like there's a risk, I would hope, of making an uninformed decision. Okay. That is something that we all should be trying very hard to guarantee enough information for people to make their own decisions. Okay. On that note, 
um, I would encourage anyone to, yeah, take your family into account when making these decisions and weigh them against your other priorities and then make your choice. And, you know, we're here if it's right for you. Perfect. We're going to talk about some other questions that I have received. But first, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, so I'm going to bring something up to you that is a personal thing. Sure. Um, with all the questions that we have about uh, the the actual logistics of research and some particular clinical trial, uh, we found out with my sister at WashU that as she was getting some of the diagnostic tests done that they wanted um, – they had to put it through Medicare or uh, through her insurance. I'm sorry, through oh. her insurance uh, to for her to participate, hmm. right? And it was um, getting a, an MRI and then getting um, a CAT scan and some other things and even the genetic testing that she did, okay. right? Uh, you should know this. The insurance company said they wouldn't pay. Yeah. I don't know if you ever know that. On the on the research side, so uh, listeners, listen up. Insurance companies are instructed to tell you no the first seven times you call. <laughs> so call eight or nine times, and they will approve things. If you call five times and you give up, or two times and you give up, you're selling yourself short. So eighth call or ninth call is the trick. But this happened when she was in a trial at WashU. In St. Louis. And so we couldn't get uh, the part that she had to pay for it. Um, it took a year and a half to get it covered. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that on, on many levels. It's uh, so in my family, uh, we also have uh, some medical needs and to try to push and push and push to just get what you know is right for your loved one, I personally – find an intensely frustrating experience. <laughs> right. And um, I, I try to be nice with the folks on, on the line. You know, they didn't design the system. But boy, it is hard. Um, and uh, it depends as well on the nature and cause of the, of the test, I suppose. But I'm not going to try to read an insurance company's mind. I'm, I'm afraid uh, for any listeners who work in insurance, I'm I've, We're sorry. I'm a little cynical. <laughs> yeah. um, well, what what cost might be deferred? What cost would the person incur at all through this process? Uh, so, for starters, um, most research with which I've been involved incurs no cost. Uh, okay. It is paid for by the study. Okay. The only possible exception to that would be if questions were raised about health or the diagnosis itself. So okay. for example, the study pays for certain labs as part of the study protocol. As part of that, sometimes other things come up. Okay. If there's more medical evaluation that is called for, 
it would be wrong for the research staff to pursue it. They're not that type of doctor. They don't have the background to follow it up. Uh, so they would then turn and say, okay, you should get this checked out. Uh, sometimes it happens where somebody begins to participate in research with which I'm involved and I may question the diagnosis. I may say, look, I know that you've been told, for example, that you have frontotemporal dementia but I'm noticing these kind of funny things in your case and it would be nice to shore this up so that we know that you're truly eligible uh, for this research and that it, you're uh, – that it's going to work for you. Right. Uh, so that's a situation again in which I might put it back uh, to the medical system, to the doctors okay. to manage. Uh, However, for the study procedures themselves, uh, for the sake of um, participating throughout the study, at least for the one that I'm doing, there's no cost. Okay. Good. Uh, one of the things that was listed on the bullet points was participants will receive stipend to defray some cost of participation. That's why oh, I Oh, I see. Uh, as far as stipends go, you know, there is always <laughs> – despite what I said – some cost um, and often it's price of gas, ah, the ability okay. to get a snack. Right. Um, the, <laughs> I the, like it. <laughs> the fact that you had to uh, find some added help for child care. It, there's always a cost to anything that's done. This is just our way of recognizing that and trying to help in what way we can. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Okay, so let's get down to the logistics of it. What will they do? They'll come in and they'll have that neurobehavioral exam. Mm -hmm. They'll get the lumbar puncture, puncture and uh, you'll get the extraction of the fluid. We know that's all one little piece right there. But then um, will they get a shot? Every week or what will happen? So um, before that, there's even more screening because we want to make sure that okay. uh, folks are right for the study. So we're also getting an MRI as part of that. So there's okay. imaging. Um, and then once engaged in the actual study, GMCSF is a shot. Um, okay. That shot is giving with great regularity, five times a week daily. Okay. Um and is therefore administered by a study partner, somebody that we know uh, can participate, will be reliable, can uh, be trusted uh, by the study participant uh, to jab them with a needle, okay. uh, which is no small thing. Right. Um, and then in addition, there are regular labs and we've uh, made arrangements uh, for that not to be a lab necessarily directly at the university. It can be a lab closer to them to try to make things more convenient. Okay. And then periodically checking in uh, to guard against uh, any possible side effect that okay. we might be on the watch for. As I've mentioned, that's our main thing. Okay. We have reasons to be optimistic. As I said, this is actually an approved drug. But you need to be sure. Mm -hmm. And so we are watching for signs of possible side effects, even those known to be associated with the drug. All medications have some side effect risk. So – and even things like bruising, bleeding around the needle site. Are there allergic reactions? Are there other things like that that we should Good be point. watching for? And watching the blood levels. So the labs right. are largely intended to make sure that it's not overstimulating the um, uh, immune system, that it's not producing too much. So we're keeping an eye on all of that. Okay. So the participants need to be close. For this particular clinical trial, they need to be in the Denver metro area? It would probably be easier for them, though certainly people are uh, able and willing to come uh, from further away. So participants are coming from uh, outside the city as well in order to participate. Okay. Um, and as I said, the injections um, are for the most part done in the home. Okay. Um, though we do want to keep close a close eye on people and we'll be checking in very regularly, at least weekly. Okay. Well, that sounds good. That sounds really good. We're trying. I, I'm excited about this. So then I ask you, uh, what do you want to accomplish with this? What is your goal? I mean, what is the end goal? What 
what is your return on investment here? What 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 do you want to hit? What's that target? Sure. Um, like any goal, uh, there's long and short term goals. Okay. You know, I could extend that out to career goals, to broad ambitions, of course. Uh, the, the wild dream is to make sure that we are uh, ultimately moving towards a cure. That would mm-hmm. be amazing. And right. we're going to do our part. We are going to try to keep plugging away until we have this. And by we, I don't mean just our group. I mean everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole community needs a treatment for this. Right. And so this is our contribution. Right. Um, so that's the big goal. Okay. Uh, the short-term goals are okay. Let's keep moving this study forward. You know, we're actively recruiting, and so we want to make sure that we get enough people in, uh, that enough people are receiving the medication, so that we know uh, how safe it is. Uh, because we are also looking for signs of benefit and we want to know if any side effects are due to the medication or not. There is a placebo group. It's a two-to-one sort of ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll be following that and at study completion, we'll at least have an answer. Okay. And if you want the honest goal, that I think is the most tractable. Okay. We all hope the answer is yes. Right. And – uh, what I really am aiming for is at least a clear answer. Okay. Well, I want to bring up some of the things that you are looking for in order for someone to qualify. So they need to be between 60 and 80 years old, already have a diagnosis of mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Yes. Um, the, there may be situations in which if we think uh, that needs to be looked at more closely – uh, we may. Um, we're still exploring different options there. Uh, how can I put this gently? Alzheimer's disease is underrecognized in the general population. Mm-hmm. And um, there may be situations in which a family is just saying, for example, you know, I really think that this is Alzheimer's disease, but I just can't. I'm not getting this diagnosis. The first stop would be, well, work within the medical system, get a second opinion, find out because right. uh, there are reasons to go far beyond the study. And we're discussing amongst ourselves how to handle those cases now. Okay. Uh, be willing and able to have a spinal tap and weekly blood draws and have a study partner, meaning you're, you know, somebody in your family or a friend who is willing to help you with giving those shots and, and taking that blood draw and dropping it off where it needs to be dropped off. Uh, that is all correct. Uh, okay. I want to emphasize, in case anybody uh, misheard, it's not a weekly spinal tap. Oh, no. <laughs> no, oh, you no. didn't say it. You didn't okay. say that. <laughs> but it would be easy to, to mishear. Uh, but we do need that. We do need the spinal okay. tap to confirm the diagnosis and see if the uh, medication is having the effect that we think it is. Okay. And the number you need to call is 303 724 Four six four four. I'm going to say that one more time. Three zero three seven two four four six four four. Now, I have actually sat with three different sets of people who called this number over yesterday and today. Oh, really? Wow! And what you will get is a woman who is on an answering machine, and she uh, first speaks in English, and then she speaks in Spanish. And then she speaks in English again, and then she speaks like triple the time in Spanish. <laughs> Please don't hang up. Uh, you know, I myself thought, my gosh, is that the same thing she said in English? Because it sounded about 15 times longer. But anyway, uh, when you call, they ask you to give your name, spell it, give your phone number and your email address I recommend you do that twice because uh, my sister called in today and uh, it sounded like she was breaking up a little bit, but it was really just the, I think she was a little nervous in her voice. And um, sometimes it may not go all the way through. So please say it twice. I promise you the recording won't hang up on you. I had a question Mm -hmm. from all three people that I tried to help. Wonderful. um, That. Uh, the ones that had the daughter who was skeptical, mm-hmm. when they get the call back, they want to have their daughter on the phone. Yes. 
And so I said, well, make a note because people that are in the early stage always tell me they make notes and then they have to find the note and all this kind of stuff. So have Alexa or whoever say, uh, remind you to ask before, you know, you talk to them. Uh, can they call back at a different time, get a live person and, and conference in whatever family member could be in California or wherever so that they can have – because if they have early stage Alzheimer's, they may not get all the answers or they may ask que- – and as soon as they hang up with you, they don't remember what you just said. I, so it's really good to have another family member. I, I hope if, if they leave a message and you call back, please – Please, please, my friends out there, ha- conference in somebody, add a call on there um, so that someone else that doesn't have Alzheimer's is listening and can write down the answers to the information that you get. And my hope is that when your folks get done talking to them, they may be able to email them the same information they just said so they can share it with family members. 100 percent. So um, there are guidelines about information that can be shared, but – the bottom line is that we want people to have as much information as they need uh, to make a, the choice that's best for them. Okay. And very often people include family members in yes. that. They want to know uh, what their daughter would think, what their son would think, what their brother would think, sister. Um, so whatever you need to be confident in your decision – is what you should be allowed. <laughs> Good. There are, you know, occasionally you bump up against some procedural problem that should be worked around until you are comfortable. There you go. Well, you know, the the thing is, is um, this nice couple I was working with today, they were in my support group last night and they asked me a bunch of questions and I read them all the information and they asked me again today. And then so um, they're just lovely. But the guy said to me, so um, are they going to send me information on all this? And I said, Yes, and you're always asking me where I think you are in the stage of the disease. And I could answer it again, but I want you to write down on this piece of paper and put some colored mark on it so you can find that piece of paper again, um, the questions that you have. Because otherwise, they struggle with trying to, you know, get that information and keep that information. So when is it going to start? When is the last date for people to call in? Do you need to get to a certain number and then you begin? How does that work? No, it's already begun. And so we're already screening people. Okay. Um, and uh, – the, the study is moving. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. And uh, so right now the study is going to go on for the next couple of years. But I'm not going to encourage people to wait that long. Um, we will be primarily focusing on recruitment for the next year to year and a half. Okay. Um, after which people need to complete uh, their procedures and then we need time to analyze the data as well okay. to figure out what we've learned. Okay. Um, your point on the importance of a study partner, I think, deserves further emphasis. Uh, Alzheimer's changes as the disease progresses. Mm-hmm. And even somebody who can fully uh, attend, fully remember and make a great decision at the beginning of a study may not be in the same place as that study goes on. Right. And so it's very important to us – to work as well with somebody who knows that study participant well, mm-hmm. who would know what they want, uh, should things progress to the point where we can't rely on the participant themselves for that report. We want right. to honor what they would want throughout. Right. And so uh, just one more reason why we so value uh, friends and family supporting people throughout this kind of research project. I completely agree. I will put this flyer on the website with this podcast. So when it goes out, it also goes out on Facebook. You can join me on Summit Resilience Training on Facebook and and access this information and get the podcast and any podcast that you want to listen to or on my website, Summit Resilience Training. And that way you can have access to this. And then by all means, call your family members and 
discuss with them as much as uh, you want to, ask as many questions as you want to, and hopefully you'll get a lot of people for this. Yeah, and I always look forward to meeting people, <laughs> study participants or no. Um, everybody who comes to us, clinic or research, has a distinct story. Right. And uh, the person in front of us represents and has lived through so much. And uh, it's really just an honor to participate in that. Well, I love having you on the show. It's an honor for me. And I hope to have you back again sometime to talk about a lot of different things, but especially <laughs> Alzheimer's, frontal temporal, and maybe how people live with it, because I am always hopeful. So thank so you, Peter Pressman, for being on the show today. I hope to have you back. And folks, I will have this information on the website for you. We'll see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Thank you. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.